Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning. My name is Connor Bales. Uh, I serve as one of the pastors on staff here at New Beginnings. If you're a guest with us today, I want to welcome you uh, to worship with us. As you just saw from the sermon uh, bumper video, uh, we are in week two of a series entitled, Who's Your One? And we are emphasizing the need, the calling to every Christian for personal evangelism. The idea being that every single one of us might identify one person we would be willing to make a personal investment of our time and energy into for the purposes of sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And, uh, you know, we talked about this last week. Really, this is the most important calling that has been entrusted to us as followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, in the Great Commission recorded in Matthew chapter 28 that we studied last Sunday, Jesus gives some final instructions to his disciples prior to ascending into heaven. This is the instruction he has for the church. And Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we talked about last week, we hold to a conviction that is built out of this great Commission. In fact, the statement that we made last week was the why we go and the how we go are built out and held together by the what we go to do. And so we talked about, okay, listen, as followers of Jesus, it's natural to ask the question, why do we go to make disciples? Well, did you hear the words of Jesus? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. And so Jesus basically says, I'm in charge of everything all the time, and in light of that, I am instructing you to go. So, believer, why do we go and tell other people about Jesus? Because he said so. That's why. Because Jesus Christ, who has all authority, said so. And listen, here's the other reason. Because the same God who declared himself to have all authority in heaven and on earth has promised he would be with us as we go. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the why is because Jesus said so, and he promised he would be with us when we go. And then we talked about, okay, how do we go? Because this is intimidating. If we're being honest in the room this morning, this idea of personal evangelism, sharing our faith with other people, is at times intimidating. It can certainly be awkward. So how do we go as we go to make disciples? Well, we go, Jesus says, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But listen, fascinating. He talks about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but we go in the singular name of God. 
Here's why that's good news for us. Because with all of the need that we have to try to credential ourselves for conversation or for moments or for experiences whereby we can share uh, our faith in Jesus Christ, the greatest credential we could carry giving us access into every conversation we might ever have is the name of God that we go to bring. So you know the value of having the right credentials. Like teachers have the right credentials when they enter into the school building, and you have to have certain credentials if you're going to be backstage at a concert. Well, listen, there is never going to be a conversation you and I are going to have or a moment we could potentially face whereby we won't be properly credentialed in the name of God to go and to do that good work. And that's encouraging for me. And then we talk about, okay, what is it that we go to do? Well, this is the most important calling for Christ followers, and that is to make disciples. Every single one of us. This is the command to Christians everywhere across all time. It's to go and make disciples. This is what you and I are charged by Jesus uh, to, to do. And so as we continue in this sermon series built out and predicated on the idea, the calling of Christ to make disciples... We're going to spend the next several weeks examining um, these one-on-one examples that are recorded in God's Word of when individuals have personally, in a very one-on-one setting, encountered uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the hope is not only that you and I would grow in a greater confidence of the calling that we have to personally evangelize others, but that we might also grow in a confidence of practically looking at ways in which these conversations can be had. Again, we want to rightly, biblically equip ourselves for what God has called each and every one of us to do. So with that as our backdrop, let me encourage you to grab your copy of God's Word and go with me to Luke chapter 19. I want everybody to get your copy of God's Word and go with me to Luke chapter 19. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, you can look on with your neighbor or we always put the Scriptures up on the screen behind me. Luke chapter uh, 19, we'll start reading together in verse number 1. And as you're turning there, You have probably noticed by now the decorations that have shown up all over the church campus. You've probably seen all the decorations on the stage and inevitably all of the decorations out in the lobby and children's ministry area. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome to New Beginnings. We don't always decorate our church campus like Super Mario Brothers. All right, This marks the beginning for us of Vacation Bible School. Yeah, it is worth getting excited about, absolutely. VBS starts for us tonight, and we are so excited because between our two campuses, we have over 650 students that have pre-registered for VBS. We will have the opportunity through siblings and parents to share the gospel with over 1,000 people this week alone, and it is going to be an incredible time for us as a church family to reach out Uh, in our communities at large and tell others uh, about Jesus. And I don't know about you, I love VBS. I grew up going to Vacation Bible School. I can remember um, all of my VBS experiences when I was a kid. And one of the things that makes Vacation Bible School so so memorable is because we always sang songs and, and had dances that went with the stories that we were learning in the Bible. 
One of the most familiar songs that we sang as a child directly from God's Word was a song about a man named Zacchaeus. I don't know how many of you grew up in church and uh, maybe know the song of Zacchaeus, but it goes something like this. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Savior he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Okay, we got a few angry saviors in the room. It's very angry. <laughs> For I'm going to your house today, right? So you remember this story, right? Some of you are need, to, need to go back and reread your text, okay, because Jesus wasn't mad. But, but listen, we're going to see today this story of Zacchaeus. And I hope today that in our examination of this very familiar uh, story from God's Word, it might bring a newfound understanding of the one-on-one nature of personal evangelism because we're going to look at the story, but from the perspective of the two central characters that are included within it, one being the man named Zacchaeus and the other being Jesus Christ himself. So this is Luke chapter 19, starting in verse number one. If you're there, say, I'm there. Here we go. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, some of you very angrily, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So so again, I want us to see this very familiar children's story, but maybe from the perspective of the two central characters, Jesus and Zacchaeus, that are found within it. And, And I think if we will do that, I really believe there will be something for every single person in the room to glean in a new and fresh way for us today. And and here's what I mean. If you are here today and you are admittedly far from God or you don't know exactly where you stand with God or maybe you don't even know exactly what you believe about God, I want to ask you to pay close attention to Zacchaeus. Likewise, if you're here today and you have been rescued by God, you belong to God, and according to the great commission of Jesus that we just read a moment ago in Matthew chapter 28, you've been sent for God, 
then I want to encourage you to pay close attention to Jesus. Because I think if we will do that, everyone can glean something from our story today. If you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write a few things down. We're going to examine Zacchaeus first and watch some character qualities that he demonstrates that I think are important for you and I to see. If you're taking notes, let me encourage you to write this down. There's two big ideas in regards to Zacchaeus. The first is that Zacchaeus demonstrates for us a simple faith. Zacchaeus demonstrates a simple faith. Look again at verses 1 through 4. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. There are three actions that are fascinating to me that Zacchaeus displays that don't seem in keeping with who Luke has described Zacchaeus to be. Let me give you just a little bit of background. The Bible describes here in Luke's gospel that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. So we're not talking about an entry-level accountant, but rather an accountant who probably managed and had oversight over other tax-collecting accountants. And in the region of Jericho, where our story is recorded, uh, Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector who was responsible for serving Rome and collecting taxes on behalf of the state But in doing so, he had the authority and permission to oppress his own people and extort them for any extra taxing that he saw fit that enabled him to earn an income and, according to Luke's gospel, become very rich in the process. And so you got to imagine that Zacchaeus was a man with authority. He was a man with power. But I wouldn't tell you that he was likely a man who was very well respected or very well appreciated because the way in which he has earned his living, and according to Luke's gospel, quite a significant one, he has done so by extorting his own people under the banner of Roman authority as he does it. And yet, Zacchaeus seems to demonstrate this childlike sincerity in his faith in the pursuit he has to encounter Jesus. It doesn't seem in keeping with this chief tax collector that the Bible would record that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Unless you know a little bit of the story of who Jesus had saved. You know, Jesus uh, did his earthly ministry with 12 disciples. That's pretty common. You might even be familiar with one of the disciples who was named Matthew. But if you don't know much about Matthew's background, he was also a tax collector. So Zacchaeus, being a chief tax collector, would have likely known a lot of the other tax collectors, and it wouldn't have been lost on him that one of the disciples who followed Jesus was a man who was a former tax collector, Name Matthew. And so Zacchaeus is thinking, well, if I know who I am, and based on the opinion that is had, everyone else knows who I am as well. They all grumbled and said he has taken a sinner into his home. 
Well, then Zacchaeus says, I wonder if this man can do something to fix me. And the evidence that gave him confidence to believe that to be yes was Matthew was walking right next to Jesus. So I say that to say some of you today might be resenting your story. Some of you today might be discouraged by what it is that you've endured or some of the things that you've suffered from. But maybe you are a Matthew and Zacchaeus is watching so that he might be saved. See, I don't believe anyone's story is accidental. I believe all of them are on purpose by God for purpose so that others might meet God. And so I don't know if you're here this morning and you're Matthew and you're already near Jesus or you're Zacchaeus and you're simply looking to him. But check out those that are around Jesus and be encouraged knowing that if he showed up and changed them, he can show up and change you too. The second thing that I think is fascinating is that this man, this chief tax collector, a man of authority, a man of power, you could argue, at least according to Rome, a man of great prestige. He ran on ahead, the Bible said. Think about how funny that would have been. Like here's this guy who probably had personal security, or at least he had a staff that uh, was associated with him everywhere he went. And yet he's so enamored with the thought of Jesus, given that who Jesus is and knowing what Jesus has done, Matthew's story being a great evidence of that, that Zacchaeus decides, this is a guy who is worth my pursuit. So he girds up his loins, and the Bible says that he runs ahead. He is so interested in meeting Jesus, he's willing to roll up his pants and to pursue to get after Jesus. God. I'm always fascinated by people who say they want to change their life. Some people will say, I want to lose weight. I need to get in shape. And they never leave the couch. I'm even more fascinated by believers who say they want to encounter God and they're never going to church or opening the Bible or spending any time doing any things whereby they might actually engage with him. You see, Zacchaeus recognizes who he is. He knows he's jacked up. He also is very aware of that just by the way everyone else around him responds to his being jacked up. And then then Zacchaeus says, well, here's a guy who might be able to change me. And because I know I need it, I'm going to gird up my loins and I'm going to go and get after him. Listen, if you want the second half of your year to look any better than the first half of your year, and you want Jesus to be a part of that, then you better roll up your sleeves and run. You can't say, well, I want Jesus to change me from the couch. Sometimes we've got to go and get after the work. The third thing I think is interesting is that he climbed up into a sycamore tree. Here's a guy uh, that had an unwavering commitment to experience the life change that Jesus alone could provide, regardless of public opinion, regardless of uh, personal obstacles. I mean, the guy was small in stature. That's the way the Bible says. Evidently, it was a Brit who wrote the children's song because we called him a wee little man. (laughs) But he pushed past people's opinion and public scorn and 
personal deficiency. Do you know why? Because he wanted to encounter Jesus. So, so listen, if you genuinely want to encounter Jesus, just know you're going to have to push past people's opinion of that. You're probably going to endure some public scorn. A relationship or two or more will likely change. And for sure, you're going to have to overcome some personal deficiencies. I don't know what those things are. I don't know what that looks like for you. But if you will display the same kind of commitment that Zacchaeus does, even if it means climbing a tree or two in your life, the simple faith that he displays is honored by God, which leads me to the second thought as it relates to Zacchaeus, is a saving faith. Zacchaeus displayed a simple faith, and yes, it was also a saving faith. Look again at verses 5 through 9. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. By the way, this isn't in my notes, but I just want to remind you that what is the attitude like of someone who is far from God and doesn't know it? That's it. A person who is far from God and doesn't know it is mad at God when he engages with people who do. Behold, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of everything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. I want to show you two quick evidences that would demonstrate uh, a genuine salvation in Zacchaeus. And if you're wondering whether or not you're saved, just ask yourself, do I have these two qualities that he does? The first is this, it's joy. The, the Bible says that after Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus, he hurried and came down and joyfully received him. Joyfully. Listen, if you're in Christ and your life has been changed by the power of the gospel, then there ought to be a joy in you that evidences that is actually true. And you understand the difference between uh, transcendent joy and circumstantial emotion. You can absolutely be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ and have the full gamut of human emotion. Absolutely. Anger, sadness, frustration, disappointment, discouragement. I mean, you absolutely, yes and amen, you will be, belong to Jesus and still suffer all human emotion. Good and bad. But if you belong to Jesus, you will also possess a transcendent joy that circumstance cannot take. A few years ago, my dad passed away, and uh, it was a great privilege for me to be able to preach his funeral. And uh, it was also incredibly difficult because, man, I love my dad. I miss my dad. In fact, I still have voicemails from my dad because from time to time I just need to hear his voice. But in the midst of my tears and emotion and sadness, because my dad was gone, I also was able to preach the gospel with clarity and from a position of joy because I knew my dad was with Jesus. You see, when my dad was a senior in high school, he gave his life to Christ. And although my dad was not a perfect man, he was a saved man. And therefore, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I knew that while sadness belonged to us, joy eternal belonged to him. And I could 
I could have a joy in the midst of that. Did I cry? Yes. Was I sad? Absolutely. Are there still days when it's hard? Yes. But none of it takes my joy away. Why? Because Jesus gives that. So I just don't believe you can be habitually and perpetually angry and belong to Jesus. And so ask yourself, how's my joy? Not my happiness, not my sadness, not my frustration, not even my moments of anger. I'm asking, how's your joy? The, the second thing is Zacchaeus displayed a fruit of repentance. This is a huge indication of life change, genuine life change. Um, Zacchaeus met Jesus, and in a moment, everything changed. He promised to live generously, and he even promised that not only was he going to give half of everything he owned to the poor, but that if he had defrauded anyone, that he was going to pay back four times what it was that he had taken. Well, that's exactly how he earned his income, so he knew exactly what it was he was saying that he would do. And listen, this is in direct opposition to who Zacchaeus had always been prior to Christ. Why is that? Well, because when you encounter Jesus, he doesn't make you better. He makes you new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. So listen, the evidence of Zacchaeus having a genuine saving faith in God is the repentance he had over the sin in which he had committed, which was an offense against God. So if you are in Christ, no, you don't automatically stop sinning, but yes, you immediately feel different about your sin. When Jesus showed up and changed my life in July of 1998, when I went back to college that fall after I got saved that summer, I didn't immediately change all of the sinful behavior and the pattern in which I was living. But I absolutely felt different every time I walked in that sin and participated in that destructive pattern of behavior. There was no more happiness. There was no more contentment. There was conviction over what it was that I had chosen to do. What was the difference? Jesus. And so if you're questioning whether or not you belong to God, ask yourself this. Do I have transcendent joy? Not circumstantial emotion. Transcendent joy. And does my life bear the fruit of repentance? Am I broken over my sin? And is there evidence that would prove that to be true? Doesn't mean have I stopped sinning. That's just not going to happen this side of eternity. But are we broken when it shows up. So that's the perspective from Zacchaeus. But let me show you the perspective from Jesus. If you're taking notes, write this down. Zacchaeus demonstrated a simple faith and a saving faith, and Jesus demonstrates a gospel intimacy. A gospel intimacy. The story of Zacchaeus has some details that are worthy of you and I paying close attention. Look again at Luke 19, verses 1 through 5. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, normally we would read that and skim right over it. But I think it's worth our noting that Jericho was not the destination that Jesus was headed. 
It was the place that Jesus was merely passing through. But the destination where Jesus was headed was not a place. Watch this. It was a person. Because if you keep reading, he says, he entered into Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. So listen, Jesus demonstrates this personal intimacy, this gospel intimacy that says, I'm not always about the destination, but I am always about the people that I meet along the way. And in this instance, this story has nothing to do with Jericho. It has everything to do with Jesus saving Zacchaeus. So some of us are getting so twisted over the idea that we haven't yet arrived that we're not paying attention to all the people and the things and the grace that God is giving us in the journey along the way. And the evidence being that when you keep reading in verse 5, it says, when Jesus came to the place. I mean, Luke is specific. I mean, there was a place because there was a man. That the Bible says, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. I must stay at your house today. So, so again, think about how busy this must have been. The crowds around Jesus are huge. Disciples around Jesus are attempting to run interference everywhere they can. Here's this chief tax collector hated by most, uh, who's a man who's small in stature, and so he can't make his way to the front of the crowd to get a glimpse of Jesus directly, has to climb a tree so that he can get the right vantage point so that he might see. People are yelling, some are crying out for Jesus. Others are, disciples are probably barking orders at one another as they attempt to maintain control. It's going to be dusty, it's going to be noisy, it's going to be loud. And in this moment, in the midst of this chaos, Jesus looks up and sees Zacchaeus. And I want, to pay, I want you to pay attention. He sees him exactly where he is, up in a tree. And exactly as he is, a chief tax collector. And so too, Jesus is looking at you. If you're here today and you're wondering whether or not you matter to God, does he know what you've done? Does he know where you've been? Or watch this, does he know what has been done to you? Let Zacchaeus remind you today, he sees you where you are. Some of you think you're up in your own tree of financial disaster. You're up in your own tree of relational chaos. You're up in your own tree of depression and anxiety. You're up in your own tree of habitual sin. You're up in your own place of frustration and angst and discouragement. But I promise you this, he sees you right where you are. And as Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector stuck in the top of a tree, so too, no matter what sin you carry or what sin has been done to you, he sees you where you are and he sees you as you are right now because he's God. Listen, he wasn't headed to Jericho. He was headed through Jericho to see Zacchaeus. 
I don't know where you are in your journey, but I promise you God is right here, right now. And he sees you where you are as you are because he's God. I remember in just a few weeks, in fact, Mary and I will celebrate our 19th wedding anniversary. And uh, it was July 1st of 2000 um, when I stood at the front of that church in Houston, Texas. And, God, it was awesome. I was nervous. I remember it like it was yesterday. And uh, I was standing there with my groomsmen uh, when the back of the doors swung open. And the, the, the church was full. I mean, it was... Uh, Friends and family that were there for the groom and friends and family that were there for the bride. And, and when the doors swung open, all I saw was Mary. And in fact, one of my favorite things to do as a pastor that officiates weddings is when the doors swing open, I love to just watch the, the facial expression of the groom. You know, it's such a great moment. And uh, I have no idea what the man who married us said that day. It might as well have been the Charlie Brown school teacher talking. <laughs> because I was locked in on my girl. Locked in. Listen, that's how Jesus sees us. You understand? Like in the midst of this crowd and this chaos, in this place where he was passing through, he locked in on a man, Zacchaeus. Where he was, as he was. Because he's Jesus. And that's how he sees you. He demonstrates this gospel intimacy. But, but he also demonstrates in this same conversation, not only an intimacy, but an urgency. Look again at the interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus in verse number 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. He used three different words to emphasize an urgency to the gospel that Zacchaeus so desperately needed to receive. Now, think about this. There's any number of ways that this conversation could have happened. Jesus could have said, Zacchaeus, man, I see it probably took you a minute to get there. I get it. I've got a schedule to keep. So I'll catch you. I'm obviously passing through Jericho, but I'll catch you on the, way, on the way back, man. Good to see you. Good looking out. Right? That could, or he could have said, Zacchaeus, man, come down here. Hug it out. I want to see you. I was hoping maybe if it was pot. But listen, I know you got people, and I, I know you're busy. So anyway, I was hoping maybe I could swing by. I was even thinking today. But listen, I get it. We're busy, and it's too, so, I, so I'll catch you on the other side. But that's how we treat evangelism. That's the urgency we have with sharing the good news of salvation. That's not the urgency that Jesus displays. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry. Come on, hurry. I must go to your house today. You understand, this is what we do. Hey, man, there's something I want to visit with you about. 
Hey, sister, I just, if time allows, man, I've just been thinking about something and I just want to have a, con- but, but we got a lot going on. I'll catch you. Uh, we'll just do it later. But not Jesus. He says, hurry, I must, and it's today. So listen, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. If the urgency of God is for the immediacy of the gospel, then why would you and I delay what Jesus does not? Right now, you have the name of friends or family members that you know who are far from God. And you are also debating the right time and when you can have that conversation. You're putting off what Jesus never did. Man, I get it. Because it's awkward. I mean, it would have been for Jesus. I mean, the dude's in a tree. The crowd is around him. Don't you know the disciples were getting annoyed because they were trying to keep people at bay? Think about the looks and the glares. I mean, the crowd themselves grumble at the decision that Jesus makes. Yes, it's awkward, but it's urgent. In my job, obviously, I officiate a lot of funerals, and one of the most difficult things for me to do is to go into someone's living room as we're preparing the funeral service for a loved one that they have lost, and they will say something like, you know, Pastor, um, we think she was saved. You know, Pastor, honestly, we, we hope he had a relationship with Jesus but we don't know. Funeral regrets are the worst. It's the worst. And I'm wondering how many of us are going to potentially have funeral regrets because we lack a gospel urgency. Listen, it's not our job for people to respond in faith, but it is our calling to tell them about a God who loves them and has made provision for them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I don't want funeral regrets, do you? So, let's have a conversation like Jesus does. Hurry. I must today. And not like we normally do. Amen. If you ever get time, I'll catch you on the other. I mean, I know we're busy. He demonstrates a gospel intimacy an urgency, and then the last, and I would argue most important, is the gospel necessity. Jesus demonstrates a gospel necessity. I don't know if you mark or highlight in your Bibles. I would encourage you to. But if you are only going to highlight one verse in your New Testament, could I ask you to make it Luke 19, verse 10? Listen to what this says. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If you're only going to highlight one verse in your Bible, would you make it Luke 19, 10? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And here's why. Everyone needs to be saved. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For there is none righteous, no, not one. 
Everyone needs to be saved. This is the reality for all people. And the Bible says in the words of Jesus himself that apart from a saving relationship through him, we're lost. You understand lostness, right? Lostness isn't on the way. Lostness is not in process. You're not lost and on the journey. You're lost. And if you are here today and you don't know where you stand with God, let me love you well enough to say what most pastors will not. You're lost. You're not figuring it out. You're not on the way. You're not in process or good enough. You are lost. I remember a few years ago when my 12-year-old now was six. We went to academy together, just he and I. And he was right at my side. And we went to the hunting and fishing section. And I was looking at stuff on the shelves and Coleman was right with me the entire time until I looked up and he wasn't in the, in the store the layout is that all of the sporting goods are on this one side of the store and the children's toys and bikes are on the exact opposite side of the store and what I didn't know then but I know now is that Coleman wandered off and went to go check out the toys But when I was looking at things and then turned around and noticed that he was gone, at first I tried to stay calm, you know? Like I was, I was like, oh, he's, he's on another aisle. So I, was, I had that instant thing, parents, you know, the instant thing, but I tried to stay calm. So I was like, Coleman, hey, dude. And I walked around, Coleman. And then it got worse. And I got out beyond the sporting goods section. And I started at a little jog. Coleman! Hey! Coleman! Where are you? And then a parent or two made eye contact with me, and immediately they knew. Sir, have you lost your son? I said, yes, his name is Coleman. I'm not sure where he is. He's probably just wandered off. I'm trying like crazy to stay calm. But let me just confess to you. I am a volcano of emotion just waiting for the moment to erupt. And now I'm yelling, Coleman! And I'm running around Academy. It couldn't have been 30 or 45 seconds before he was found. <laughs> I can get emotional just talking about it to you now. And I want you to know I'm a jacked up, broken mess of an earthly father. I screw up with my family all the time. And if that's the feeling and the emotion that I had when I lost my son for 45 seconds, how much more then must our heavenly father be heartbroken that there are image bearers Men and women created in His likeness that are lost 
not for a few minutes, but for eternity. Apart from Jesus. And if it broke my heart so much in that moment then, don't you see that it breaks his heart so much that he sent Jesus Christ so that we might be found? What's the purpose for God coming to earth? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And here's the coolest part about it. There were some other parents that jumped in and helped me find my son. Don't you see, if you're in Christ, God has said, jump in and let's go find my kids. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter and James. They were lost until they got found. And then Jesus said, let's go get their others. And so if you're here today, here's what I'm asking. You're either lost and I promise you, God wants you to know that he has sent his son so that you might be found. Or you're found and God said, let's go get the others that are still lost. Every person in this room can respond to what this word says today. You either relate to Zacchaeus or you appreciate the work of Jesus. So I'm going to ask you, if you're here today and you are far from God, you don't know where you stand or what you believe, you can leave today having an absolute assurance of that. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. When I say amen, our staff and spouses will be here at the front of the room. We would love to pray with you. We would love to talk with you about God's plan to find you. But others of you, you're here and you belong to Jesus and now you're under this conviction of his spirit. Who's your one? Right? Who's your one? God's given you a name. He's given you a friend or a family member. There, you may have five. But if you want to pray with us about the names that God has given to you, we would love that. We would love to journey with you and ask God to do something powerful through you. Why? Because the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this day. Thanks for the reminder of this word, Lord Jesus. I pray that we would be a family of faith that is found trustworthy with all that you have given for us to enjoy. Lord, thank you for sending Jesus Christ. The greatest demonstration of your love is that you sent Christ for us. So as we enter into this time of invitation and response, I pray that we would be bold and honest about where we are. God, for those in the room that relate to Zacchaeus, give them the courage to step out so they might be saved. God, for those of us in the room that you have given us a name, help us to see from Jesus the intimacy, the urgency, and the necessity that we have to share. We love you and we trust you. And in our faith, we ask this from you in Jesus' precious name.